Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, welcome. We are 49 minutes or so from the end of the week, which, you know, like I actually really dislike people who talk about their work week. Like, oh, Wednesday's hump day, if I can just get over Wednesday. <laughs> oh, is it ever the weekend ever going to be over? Thank God it's Friday. I'm always thinking, wow, get a job you don't hate as much. <laughs> I guess that's not fair. I mean, not everybody can have jobs that they like. But I'm just saying I've never wanted to be that person. And I'm not. But I will say that this has been a very challenging week for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, and we've actually done some really good shows that you haven't heard yet because we couldn't put them on the air. Um, but we've also done some shows that did get on the air and that were really good. And I'm just going to say right now, we did our opening of season two of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. It was live yesterday. Uh, it'll be uh, on uh, at noon on Saturday. It will be slightly improved or aug- <laughs> augmented. I don't even really know what I'm talking about, but I'm just sort of telling you that Things will happen to it that will make it even better. So, I mean, if you don't have to listen again if you already listened, but it's 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 really good. It's worth listening to. And I like I, I don't almost never say that about. Not that I don't feel that way about our shows, but I never say that. You know, this is really good. You should listen to it. All right, you should really listen to this show too because it's going to be good. Uh, our guests today are Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer. Uh, I think she's also a virologist uh, or an epidemiologist, (laughs) uh, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio. They are both joining us via the miracle of Skype. So we're going to be, well, we're going to talk in just a few minutes about porches, about the the renewed love of porches, uh, the porch recrudescence. Uh, And then we're also going to talk about a series that's all about swear words, hosted by Nicolas Cage. I didn't do a good Nicolas Cage there. So, um, but we're going to begin with another icon. And I just want to say, before we even get into this, no, I'll wait, never mind. Um, I don't sound right now like I know how to host a radio show, but I actually do know how to host a radio (laughs) show, and I'm going to... I'm going to start sounding that way very soon. So Tom Cruise has been in the news but because mainly of his intense desire to enforce COVID protections on the set of Mission Impossible 23 or whatever Mission Impossible iteration that they are doing right now. Uh, and uh, this included one of those things where somebody grabbed uh, a little video of him losing it. Uh, losing it uh, at, at a couple of people working on the set, I think because they were just standing too close together. Um, and so here is what that sounded like. We are the gold standard. You're back here in Hollywood making movies right now because of us. Because they believe in us and what we're doing. I'm on the phone with every studio at night. Insurance companies. Producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. 
if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. That's it. No apologies. I've really started talking to uh, my producers, Jonathan McPants and uh, Betsy Kaplan that way, ever since I heard that clip. The clip's like about a month old, and we've been <laughs> about to talk about it on the nose every single week, and we never get to it. And the reason we're talking about it now is because <laughs> in a very sort of on-brand Scientology move, Tom Cruise has brought robots, two robots, onto the set to make sure that people don't mess up. So, um so we have to sort of break this up into little parts, I think. So, Carolyn, we're going to start with you because you've actually been on some sets in your capacity uh, as an actor. Um, and, and as I understand it, you actually are kind of happy that there's a Tom Cruise out there enforcing these rules. Yeah, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would find myself saying, I agree with Tom Cruise. I'm going to lay that out there. But here I am saying, I agree with Tom Cruise 100%. Um, I have returned to working sometimes on, on set in, for different things. And I have seen and experienced some things that made me feel uncomfortable. And I mean, all sets, they are trying their hardest. And, and you know, they have COVID compliance officers. And, uh, you know, I think everyone does have really good intentions, but it's hard because especially if it's a shoot that you're doing for multiple days, like you, you tend to kind of start dropping your guard a little. And it's just such a weird way of working that none of us are even used to it. Um, I, you know, so, but I get what he, where he's going with this and I wouldn't hate seeing a militant robot policing my set for safety. I, I bring it on. I, I am agreeing with Tom, with Tom Cruise a hundred percent here. So Brian Slattery, particularly in your capacity as a science fiction writer, we are apparently prepared to welcome, <laughs> we are welcoming our robot overlords. A little bit. I mean, it's, so I was reading more about the robots and there is a reasonable question as to what they're actually doing. Like, are they just there to test people for COVID or are they like going around and forcing people to say like, danger, danger, six feet, you know, it's unclear. Um, but, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me in the same way that, uh, well, okay. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me in the same way that the, that the robots at stop and shop do and do not bother me. <laughs> you know, they're, that's they're what I keep picturing too. The stop yes. and shop robots. <laughs> what is, yes. what is that robot? It has a name. What's its name? I, I keep thinking it's Rudolph or something, but that's, I, it. I'm struggling. Marty, to remember Marty, what it, Marty, Marty, yes. Marty. Yeah. I'm but being that's, told. Like, that's a robot that I, when I go to stop and shop, I, I almost knock it over almost every time I'm there for some reason. Uh, you know, it's, 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 I'm not worried about the robots taking over and I'm definitely much more worried about people keeping getting sick. <laughs> so well, so I, I find mean, myself in agreement with Tom Cruise and yeah. Carolyn. And Carolyn, I mean, I think we want it, among the speculation that Brian just named, we want it to say danger, danger. We want the robots to, you know, there used to be a thing when I was growing up where I went to a boys' school and sometimes there would be mixers with a girls' school. I think mainly Miss Porter's, but I'm not sure because I didn't go. But um, but there were like people with rulers, like yardsticks or something, to make sure you weren't dancing too close to a person and like they would come and they would 
step in and they would measure and stuff like that. Uh, Robot chaperone. I basically grew. I basically grew up in Bridgerton. Is what I'm trying to say. But um, <laughs> but um, you know, Carolyn. Yeah, I don't want them just to be testing people. I want them to be. I want the robots to be doing the thing Brian said. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, what you just said, that's crazy to me because when I was like in junior high, girls would wear overalls to dances because it was like easy access to boys while you were dancing. We probably could have used those teachers with rulers <laughs> for that. Um, <laughs> well, nobody was forcing you to wear the overalls. <laughs> well, you know, uh, but anyway. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes and no. It was somewhat obligatory. You could have um, worn a suit of armor. Yeah, that would have kept me real popular. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, back to the robots. Yeah, so I, I, I did find myself fantasizing what these robots would would be like, like coming between people that are too close together. You know, a siren going off if someone doesn't have a mask, those kind of things. And I, I, I mean, I, it's it's futuristic in a really creepy way, but. It, it's it's helpful. I, it would really probably work better than another person, because uh, I don't know if you've had the experience, either of you, where you've been out in public and someone it doesn't have a mask on. I, I mean, it would be terrifying to confront that person because you don't know mm. as much as you want to say, hey, can you can you put your mask on? I mean, I'm a fairly confrontational person and I would still never do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so if there was a robot that was going around doing it, that would be great. It could take all the flack for, you know, the risk of having to have those confrontations. It, you pointed out an interesting thing that it, it is kind of cool that we, that we like exempt robots from social conventions. You know, yeah. it's like, like, like we do with like children and, and like very old people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, it's, I think it's not that we, I mean, so Brian, isn't the larger question, once again, you're the science fiction writer, um, <laughs> that if you start making the robots do all the hard stuff of being a human being, I mean, telling somebody they look lovely today, although I guess that could get you fired now, but I mean, that's sort of easy to do, you know, whereas telling somebody to put their freaking mask on, that's it, no apologies, you know, yes. you don't want to do that, so you get the robot to do it. I'm just sort of wondering what sort of yeah. human cost there is. Yeah, I mean, I okay, of, of the sort of like um, robot futures that have been imagined in science fiction, my favorite one is still the one in WALL-E <laughs> where, <laughs> where they farm out everything to the robots and just become, you know, these like extremely lazy people. Mm -hmm. And like that's what I started imagining, you know, as, you know, as if we, if we farm out all of our social obligations to the robots, then, you know, that we just kind of let them boss us around as we listlessly move from fast food place to fast food place. Right. Yeah, I was kind of picturing like Rosie, the maid robot from the Jetsons. That was her name, right? Because <laughs> I feel like she's yes. the kind of boss lady who gets things done. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. And and I just pictured her with like hand sanitizer and Lysol, like just busting through. In my mind, that's that's what I came up with. <laughs> So, would, um, I mean, it would be interesting to see like that, like the people who are not mask compliant, you know, militantly. So it'd be interesting to see how they would square off against one of these things. Right. Uh, you really can't reason with it, but you can't reason with them either. So uh, just to switch gears a little <laughs> bit, there is something really satisfying, um, Brian, about 
the way Tom Cruise sounds in that clip. I mean, he kind of sounds like an amalgam of most of the characters that he plays. Uh, and, oh and, yeah. And yeah. I, I, it's sort of like, if you were just, if you were to tell me, give me a choice of watching a movie. And the only thing I knew about it was who the male lead was. And you said, gave me a choice of, I don't know, Nicholas Cage or Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise or John Travolta or whatever. I don't know. I would pick Tom Cruise almost every time if that's the only thing I knew. Kind of because of that, right? I mean, he really seems like he's not Jack Reacher or anything, but he's, you know, he thinks he's Jack Reacher. Yeah, he's definitely got his kind of like human bullet thing going on that he's <laughs> so good at. <laughs> yeah, and it's it is it is nice to see that being used for the forces of public safety finally, you know. <laughs> it's Yeah. Right. In some ways like he I I, I'm a I'm married to a pediatrician, so I know a lot of healthcare workers, mm -hmm. and I feel pretty safe saying that he kind of speaks for them all right now. <laughs> like the level of exasperation that they feel with <laughs> like getting people to comply with what are like ultimately some pretty basic rules. Yeah, and but and but also just you know once again theatrically, Carolyn, there I don't know. He just really he a lot of times when you hear an actor who's talking on set and doesn't know it's being captured by video or whatever. They don't, there's something kind of unsatisfying about it. It's like, oh, well, he's not anywhere near as interesting or galvanizing, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, totally. This is a really well put together dramatic monologue. Like this is, you know, a, a very empowered scene <laughs> that just happens to be him in real life. But you could totally take this and, and just put it, put it on on film as as Tom Cruise and it would be entertaining uh which is which is odd and i mean a lot of actors like i i think that you know there are kind of those blurred lines like maybe it's it's a mission impossible movie he's probably like real revved up and everything and kind of in that character so maybe that helped fuel some of this fire uh but it's it's a pretty it's a pretty epic and awesome rant with lots of great swear words too <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the last thing we need to say before we move on, Brian, is that the news articles of this note that Tom Cruise is 58. And uh, uh, you know, one of the things that, that Pants, uh, our producer, has done is he circulates this thing about like what Wilford Brimley looked at, looked like at the same age as Tom Cruise. And so Tom Cruise is the same age as Wilford Brimley was when they were in the movie The Firm together, except that Tom Cruise looks like Amazing. Tom Cruise. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> no it really is like i mean he's one of those guys especially the last few years where you're, you're like how is he doing this and it's not just a question of like what his face looks like or it's more just about the like the the shape the physical shape that he has to stay in i keep imagining that he works out about 10 hours a day i mean just to just to maintain what you need to jump out of a helicopter onto a moving flatbed truck while remembering your lines I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. What, like, what an interesting human specimen he is. <laughs> I'm now Googling uh, images of Tom Cruise because apparently I just hadn't really invested in how uh, on his, of his body upkeep recently. And uh, you're, you're It's right. really remarkable. I mean, yeah, no, I, like, I'm 45 and that man could definitely take me in a fight. Like, oh yeah. Easy, easy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you could <laughs> climb up on something high, you might be able to get away from him. But um, yeah, all right, so um, so we have to shift gears here. And I think in order to shift gears, we have a little uh, musical uh, interlude, a little uh, country tune by Tracy Lawrence. So um, 
So, Kat, why don't we play this? Do it! No apologies! Play the cut! See, I'm trying to be a little bit more like Tom Cruise. It doesn't really work. It was where my mama sat on that old swing with her crochet. It was where granddaddy taught me how to cuss and how to pray. It was where we made our own ice cream, no sultry summer nights. Where the bulldog had her puppies and us brothers had our fights. There were many nights I'd sit right there and look out at the stars. To the sound of a distant whippoorwill or the hum of a passing car. And it was where I first got up the nerve to steal me my first kiss. And it was where I learned to play guitar and pray I had the gift. If the world had a front porch like we did back All right, yes, we are about to uh, sing the praises, I think, of the front and the back porch. Um, and actually, it's good because each, each panelist is a little bit more oriented one way or the other. Um, so, but there, this is all kind of apropos of an, uh, an essay we read on Tree Hugger uh, about. And I, I have to say, I hate to be this guy, but like I wrote that piece in 1990, and I was pretty sure somebody had written that piece in the 1980s. I mean, they're just sort of every <laughs> decade or so somebody yes. write, somebody sort of writes a bunch of pieces saying really front porches are really good, porches are really good. They make us interact with one another and interact with our neighbors and people walking down the street. And so we should do it. How come we let the deck eat the front porch? Uh, blah blah blah. But that doesn't mean it's not an interesting uh, subject. So. Um, so, Carolyn, your front porch in the West End of Hartford, I mean, it's not just a place where people can sit around uh, drinking wine and chit-chatting. I mean, it's it's being used by the by your role in the entertainment industry. Yeah, my uh, front porch has really, uh, it, it's become a set. I actually filmed a commercial on my front porch during, uh, during this time, and uh, that was crazy. And uh, then I, I organized a front porch musical for my neighbors. Uh, so we, because in the West End, there are a lot of porches and we all, I encourage people to film themselves singing from their front porches. Uh, and that video kind of went viral. And uh, it was so, one more, yeah. one more, one more day from Les Mis, just to sort of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's weird because like, I actually, prior to this, didn't really, the front porch was like, real estate in my house I never really used. And uh, now this year, I feel like my porch has become like kind of famous. Like it's just, <laughs> it's it's living a good life. And it, it's bizarre to me. I mean, I've also never spent this much time at home or had any reason to have a film crew come into my home, uh, which is very, it's a bizarre experience, just even if they're just there on that, on that front porch. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I guess I feel very differently about how I look at front porches now, uh, because, because of how this year has, has gone and what my front porch has, has done for me. <laughs> and so Brian, uh, you went uh, more back porch just cause you didn't have that much to work with on the front porch. That's right. So we, um, we had a, when we first went into our house, we, we built a screened in porch on the back of it. Um, that we've been using religiously ever since. And the uh, it's it's it was the social center of our lives during warm weather, even before this. 
And it turned out to be like during all of this, it turned out to be the difference between being able to see people and not being able to see them. You know, it's the it was all about being able to make social plans that didn't revolve around the weather or you know what they had to cancel if it rained. Um, and I helped record an album on somebody else's porch. I know somebody else recorded an album on their porch. Um, I played music for a wedding that was on somebody's porch uh, this summer. Uh, it's 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 very cool that the that the that the pandemic has brought this back to me. I think that uh, you know as people have grown to value like their face to face interactions, like the porch has been the place where you can actually do that. Um, and I'll, I'll note that like in my neighborhood now, there's there's a lot of uh, fire pits that people are huddling around, you know, and, and saying that they're warm enough <laughs> just, just so they can. Uh, they're they're total liars. They're like I, I have been invited to some fire pit, some winter fire pit activities. And I am just I'm not a cold weather person. So yes. I'll wait till it's it's warmer and we can socialize in, in yeah. you know, where I'm not feeling like I'm going to die from the cold. No, you need those gas heaters on poles and you can, you can buy the, like That's they have right. in Paris cafes and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I have to say that, I, so I, first of all, I think everybody listening now feels guilty that they don't record albums on their porch or make commercials on their porch <laughs> or film musical numbers on their porch. All they do is like open up their Amazon packages. Um, so uh, you should obviously all of you need to be doing a lot more on your porches. I, I, actually, I don't really do anything. I don't, we don't really exactly have a porch here, but it made me think, the article made me think about how one of the things that has, sort of has happened, I think particularly in somewhat affluent neighborhoods, is that houses kind of disconnected themselves from the street, right? There's sort of a way in which yeah. the front of a house now sort of says nothing to you. If you're walking by, it certainly doesn't say, you know, stop on by and have a glass of lemonade or something like that. I mean, not that we would do that during a pandemic, but just in general, I think what's happened anyway is that the front of the house no longer connects you to the rest of reality. And and it, that the article in Treehugger, it did make me think about that, that, you know, you we probably should have a house that a uh, front of our house that somehow or other relates to the street i mean i now you know i mentioned this 85 times already but uh partly because of the pandemic i now have a, a milkman or a milk person who delivers milk you know and cheese and yogurt and stuff like that you know and because it's not the same person every time i can tell that they really don't know where to put the milk you know, because <laughs> yeah. my house doesn't really say, oh, this is where you you leave the milk. This it, it's not like that. And 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 so, Brian, I do sort of feel like, you know, this is sort of a thing that really started to happen. I think maybe in the 70s, uh, you started reading books like Sl Philip Slater's The Pursuit of Loneliness or David Reisman's The Lonely American. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a, a way in which we chose to kind of turn away from our neighbors as much as possible. And maybe maybe it is good if there's a reversal happening of, of that. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to find out, um, like, like I live in a neighborhood where all of the houses were built before 1930. Like, they were kind of like the McMansions of their day of the late 20s. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what makes them, what makes it interesting is that, the, like, the geography of the neighborhood has proved to be, like, pretty sociable during this time. Like, I've gotten to know my neighbors a lot better because we're all outside I, a little bit more. Yeah, um, I will agree with that. That's something that during a pandemic, I think it is most shocking to me that I've actually gotten to know more of my neighbors. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, yeah. It'd be, it'd be cool to see like how much that's true depending on, you know, when the housing stock was built, like, like the, uh, the, 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 the wedding that I attended was like right in the middle of New Haven, uh, you know, in a, in a sort of like what used to be factory housing for the Winchester neighborhood. Um, and, but I, I can't say that I've, I don't, I don't know a lot of people who live outside of, you know, out, outside of like old housing stock like that. It'd be a pretty fascinating experiment, right? Although I think the other thing you ultimately need, the more that that happens, is uh, the creation of norms and etiquette and stuff like that. Because uh, we yeah. all we want to have our neighbors out on our porch. We don't necessarily want to hear our neighbor's entire Bruce Springsteen collection, uh, you know, blasting on a three or four. Uh, not that we don't like Bruce Springsteen, but we want to choose <laughs> to hear him at certain times. Um, stuff like that. I mean, you know. my neighbors and I have definitely tolerated a lot of each other learning instruments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. No, your your neighbors now are essentially, you know, 30 percent Balkan just from, you know, uh, listening. to. I'm, I'm uh, working on it. Yeah, I'm working on that. <laughs> <laughs> listening to you play all this world music out there. So, yeah, I mean, you, you know, there, there we, we need to understand each other a little bit better on that level. But the only way that happens is if you begin the process. And I, I think most of us, our first inclination is to sort of create a bubble for ourselves where we're kind of not being bothered by anybody who lives anywhere near us. And I think that was intensified by the move towards our phones and our tablets and stuff like that as the main source of interacting with the world. But Carolyn, I think one of the things that you're pointing out when you're saying you get to know your neighbors better is when, you know, you could just stay on your phone or tablet and communicate with people that way. But when you can't, when you have fewer choices about it, somehow or other that, that idea of, direct human contact it seems more urgent maybe yeah i mean i kind of like pushed myself upon my neighbors posting online being like hey do a porch musical with me um i guess that <laughs> that helped uh sort of like open open the porch if you will to communication uh amongst them and uh it, it is kind of nice to sort of have names to, faces that you see around the neighborhood if you're out you know out for a run and things like that uh, it, it definitely, it's, it's kind of the, I'd say that that has been one of the nicest things during the pandemic during this time, uh, is that I actually kind of feel this sense of community within my neighborhood. Um, and, uh, as far as porches go and, and in that context, I think one of the happiest memories from 2020 will be for me standing, going out on my porch, the moment fi finding out that, uh, Biden was elected. And uh, yes. every house on my block <laughs> was, uh, you know, popping champagne bottles. And this was at like 10 in the morning on a Saturday <laughs> and everyone's popping champagne and blasting music and singing together uh, and shouting and waving, you know, Biden signs and flags at each other, all staying on their own porches or front lawns. And it was a really cool moment. It just felt, uh, you know, where you can't go and be with with your friends and your family and you don't really get to socialize and celebrate the way we used to. There was something really cool about that. Uh, and so I think that that wins. My porch has been an overachiever this year, but that simple moment wins for me. All right. That's a good place to land the plane. So we're going to stop there. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about swear words. So strong. 
We are back. Uh, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is The Nose. Uh, our guests today are Carolyn Payne and Brian Slattery. Uh, we are uh, about to talk about uh, a uh, series on Netflix called The History of Swear Words. It's a documentary series ho- hosted by Nicolas Cage. Uh, and it debuted uh, on Netflix on Tuesday. It's produced by Funny or Die. Um, I guess before we start, I should say, if you have like kids or extremely sensitive people, people who have problems with bad language, uh, we are going to say some words that we typically don't say on this show. We are not going to say the F word, which is the subject of episode one, and we are not going to say the S word, which is the subject of episode two. But (laughs) you might want to just turn down the radio or something for a second. We will say the word bitch, we will say the word dick, and we will uh, say, and after all, it's been part of the political public discourse since 2016. We will say the word pussy. Um, so, cause it just like, we're just assuming that everybody who's listening now has grown up enough to be able to handle this, at least in the context in which it is uh, given to us. We should say also, uh, that the show, uh, is kind of divided up among, first of all, there's a kind of quasi animated sort of recreations of certain historical uh, linguistic trends. But in terms of people speaking, uh, there are a bunch of entertainers. Most of them are stand-up comedians. The most famous among them probably are Sarah Silverman, Nick Offerman, Jim Jeffries. Uh, I-, I should probably have recognized some of the other people, but I didn't, uh, although a couple of them I will recognize definitely the next time I see them. And then there's some experts, uh, ranging from uh, kind of a neurolinguistics person to Corey Stamper, formerly with Merriam-Webster, the author of Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. Um, gratifyingly, the wonderful critic and public radio presence, Elvis Mitchell, who I just don't hear enough of, partly because I should subscribe to his podcast, uh, it plays a big role in kind of contextualizing uh, all of this. So before we get the panelists to talk a little bit about this, let's hear uh, Nicolas Cage uh, right at the beginning. And this is episode one where they are talking about the F word. They're the most popular and alluring taboos we have, but the secrets to their strange power have been shrouded in mystery until now. Join me on a journey through the history, evolution, and cultural impact of swear words. An actor's greatest tool is their imagination, but swearing is definitely up there. With swear words, we can cut, soothe, delight, frighten, insult, and seduce. Of all the swear words in the English language, none is as malleable as It's capable of expressing the full range of human emotion. The pain, the wonder, the unlawful carnal knowledge in a single soul. So I guess maybe I want to begin with a question, which may be a completely pointless question, but I'll ask it anyway. Brian, I'll start with you. You know, there's a, I think there's a question that I have about what this series is. And you know, you listen to the setup that Cage does there, and you feel like it's going to be, you know, a real exploration of, of linguistics and, and that it's going to really sort of, you know, try to get you thinking uh, more about certain things and, and larger knowledge about certain things. And I'm not saying it doesn't do that. But the other possible way to look at the series is it's mostly a lot of comedians being really you know, being or trying to be really funny about these words, occasionally interspersed with people who actually have linguistic knowledge. And I'm just sort of wondering in general, like, how did you take in this particular series? Um, it was fun. 
it was fun. It was I would describe it sort of as titillating though, at the same time. Like it wasn't quite as uh, maybe insightful as it could have been. It opened a lot of questions that I would have liked to have heard it explore a little bit more. Um, but at the same time, I think that it, it made some sort of good overall points. I mean, there was, I, I enjoyed the idea of it not falling into the trap of like, you know, we, we, the society keeps getting more vulgar, which is something that we hear a lot. And it, it put the lie to that kind of thing. And I, I liked the kind of general idea of how vulgarity tends to sort of shift and morph in interesting ways over the centuries. You know, things that um, uh, those of us total nerds who studied like old English in college have been telling people when we've had too much to drink for years and nobody will listen. <laughs> and now this series is helping us do that. Carolyn, how about you? How, I mean, what was your overall impression of it? So... I see. I found like it needed more nerds. Like yeah. I, I felt that it. If anything, it just like led me to a lot of like googling and going down rabbit holes because I yeah. feel like it was too, uh, too loaded with the comedians and less. I wanted more from, uh, you know, historians and the linguistic. That was I that felt like where it was at its best. And it would have been stronger for me in some ways if uh, if it had leaned heavier on that end. And I know that that's a, that's a surprising take coming from me that I was like, I could have used more of an intellectual aspect here. But <laughs> um, I, I did feel that for, for me, it would have it, it, there were moments where it just kind of uh, and they're short, like 20 minute episodes. And a lot of the times I was like, they could have edited this down to at least like, you know, 12 minutes. And it would have been even stronger. Um, that being said, I didn't hate Nicolas Cage here. So this is a crazy day for me because I'm saying I agree with Tom Cruise and I didn't hate <laughs> Nicolas Cage. I don't know what's going on with me today, but let's just take it. But Nicolas Cage was actually a really good uh, good host for this. One yes. thing that occurred to me, like the Tom Cruise question we asked, is, is are, are we seeing like the actual Nicolas Cage <laughs> as the host of this show? Like, I, Is that what he talks like when he talks at home? No. Oh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> no, he's no. so direct to camera on this in, in a way very, and, and 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 you can sort of feel the there's a prompter that he's working yeah, off yeah, of a lot yeah. of the time. Uh, I, I I mean, first of all, I agree with both of you, um, but I think I'm leaning a little bit more in Carolyn's direction in the sense that although what I think is that they could have cut a lot of stuff. There are way too many comedians in this, and a lot of them don't really contribute very much. Um, in fact, I really like Nick Offerman a lot, but I, mm. every time he came on, he said almost nothing, as far as I could tell. He was um, definitely the weakest link. Yeah, yeah. and 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 I I think they could have cut a lot of that. And I think what it needs more of is the way people who can describe bumping up against the restraints. You know, most of these comedians are also pretty young. I mean, they don't, they, they're not people who would remember getting thrown out of a club uh, for using wrong language on the stage. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, I actually, I said, in, as we were emailing, I, I thought Howard Stern would have been a great guest, partly because he yeah. just spent so much time bashing his head against the wall of this. And the other reason was, <laughs> that I my my trivial complaint to you was how could you do an episode on the p word? Okay, I guess we said we were going to say that word. How can you do an episode on the word pussy and not have a clip of James Bond? Um, yeah, Sean, <laughs> Sean Connery. So true. Uh, yeah. In that particular way that he said pussy, pussy. You know, and and Stern on his show they they would they would spend 
30 minutes just all stern and his confederates just saying that word over and over trying to get the sean connery sound in it but to me it it needs that it needs like you know there was a moment when the new yorker started like putting these words in their articles there was a moment when the new york times you know you 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 would never find the s word or the f word ever in the new york times uh and and trump to a certain degree stretched their standards but they had already relaxed a little bit before that I feel like all of that is sort of missing. It's all comedians kind of saying what they think about it, and then very, very learned uh, etymologists saying what they know about it. But there's sort of a big missing societal piece uh, that that I think kind of isn't in there that might make it a little bit more interesting. But also, Brian, I'm also kind of this old, crusty old jerk, so maybe I'm not really well. I mean, in its defense, they they actually have a much longer time period, right? right? Like they, they're very good at sort of pointing out that, you know, we had these words in the Renaissance that we don't have anymore. Um, you know, the, and that nobody cares about. And the, the, uh, I appreciated, of course, the, the mention of Lucille Bogan, the most, the raunchiest blues singer in the universe, you know, recording things a hundred years ago that were, that will still make people blush now. Um, you know, the, the, like the, there is a kind of fun way that that our lifetime is really a flash in the pan for these vulgarities, and that you know this this thing that we some of us have experienced of uh, words being okay now that weren't when we were younger. Um, you know, if you had lived from it's it's suggesting in things like you know if you had lived from 1900 to 1950, you might have seen the apps the reverse. <laughs> you know. Well, I guess it was trying to focus on our our relationship to these words and why we want to use them. One of the things that I enjoyed the most, and then uh, Alex, my roommate, and I ended up testing this. The, the they had they had the vats of ice water, and they had them hold their hands in it, and half Did you of them do that swear. Thing? Yes. Oh great! <laughs> yes, obviously, this is what um, this I is where it. where things went. This is such yeah. a lockdown story, but continue. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, exactly. Um, so anyway, because I'm a big I'm a big swear. Like it, it is the I I am sweating right now just trying not to say something on air. Uh, oh my honestly, God. like yes. yeah, I, yeah. I, I I am just literally sitting here like a sweaty, anxiety ridden mess because I am so afraid I'm going to drop an. <laughs> f-bomb by accident yep. but you're not sweating as much as cat pastor is right now because she's the one who has to get your f-bomb off the air before it gets out but anyway continue <laughs> yeah, i got you i'm not gonna do it i'm not gonna do it um but yeah so i had to be the person to not swear and uh alex who is not really a swearer actually at all like he could if he wanted to and the whole point of this experiment that they were saying is that science has proven that the use of curse words actually helps us cope with pain and it uh, releases adrenaline and i a hundred percent agree with that uh and so that was kind right. of that was an interesting uh experiment for sure and i recommend everyone test it at home <laughs> yeah You're not i mean doing like my my life is definitely real anecdotal evidence of that I mean, it's no question. Well, <laughs> yeah. I've I've never, uh, um, and Brian, you, you may well, you probably wouldn't even want to uh, disclose much about this. But my understanding is that you, when one is present, well, when one's wife is giving birth, uh, one's when he hears one's wife say words that you've just never heard, uh, kind of for exactly that reason, that you know, to get through the incredible pain of this. <laughs> women often some some vocabulary. Yeah, so. I mean, I think that's definitely super common, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, like that's 
it, it was certainly the case for us. I mean, not loudly, but yeah. There was yeah. actually a great moment where when she's not going to mind. She went into labor and she started swearing in the kitchen and her dad was there and he looked at me and goes, I think it's starting. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. was a lovely moment. Like, you know, it's time to go to the hospital. And, and I, I feel like this, well, first of all, Carolyn, uh, so first of all, who won when you guys did the ice bucket, the, the, the challenge? So he, he did because I'm a pussy when I can't swear. <laughs> <laughs> Cat was very tempted just to dump that thing right there, but I don't think she did. Um, all right, so um, yeah, I mean, and I I do think one of the things that the series does well is explore the layering of these things. So I mean, I think because they have made a point of having some feminist and uh, and people of color among the scholars. You know, there's ways in which, for example, the word that Carolyn just said, you know, has kind of it, it, it was something that a guy could say to another guy at a certain point until it was called to their attention that what they're basically doing is insulting another man by associating him with a, a female body part, which makes it seem like there's something wrong or weak or, or lesser about that female body part. And I mean, it didn't really stop guys from doing that, but it stopped some guys from doing that. Um, and, and I was pointing out as we were prepping for the show that The Daily Show at a certain point realized that they could do it if they were making if they had Ed Helms or one of their correspondents use that word as he was playing a kind of strutting, unenlightened, confrontational, jerky character. And once they did that, they went wild uh, with it. But but, you know, Brian, I think the series is pretty good at sort of saying, well, it isn't like each one of these words is an integer with a specific value that never changes. The word yeah. changes with time and with context and there's just a constant dialogue going on between the word and its society. Yeah. I mean, I thought that part was super fascinating, especially the stuff about the S word, which again, like really coincides with my own, <laughs> with my own life. I mean, the, the extent to which the S word has become a synonym for just like thing or noun is, is really uh, remarkable. I mean, when I was, a, when I was a kid, I don't think anybody talked like that. And now I feel like I'm surrounded by people who talk like that, you know, all the time. And I mean, you could even, you could make the good argument that, that the fact that these, that these um, episodes got made at all is indication that some of these words have lost some of the power that they had just a few decades ago. Like, I, I think your question is as to like, whether, why there isn't an episode about the C word, for example, is um, maybe that one's still, a little too, um, a little too hot to handle, I guess I'd say. <laughs> Although pe- people say it in some of the other episodes, I I, I heard it said mm. two or three times in the yes. other episodes. So. Yeah, right. But maybe you just can't yep. do a, a whole. Well, one of the things they actually point out twenty is minutes that... of it, maybe. Yeah, maybe they thought, <laughs> okay, we have to see how. Let's see how people feel about the F word one first. You know. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we probably have to stop here anyway, um, and that's good because we haven't lost our FCC license. Um, and so thanks for listening to that. When we come back on the other side, we will make some recommendations.
All right, so time for me to say some thank yous. Uh, you've heard Cat Pastor's name mentioned a few times. She's the person in the studio running the board, uh, making sure everything happens the way it's supposed to happen, and making it possible for me and Jonathan McPants, the producer of this episode, to work remotely. So thanks to her, thanks to Jonathan McPants for pulling all this together and all the clips and stuff like that. Uh, it is now time for us to make some recommendations. We are uh, going to go to our panelists, Brian Slattery and Carolyn Payne. Brian, why don't you uh, lead us off here? Um. The one that I'd like to recommend is the book I'm reading right now, which is a book called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. And it's about this at a time when a bunch of libertarians took over a small town in New Hampshire and proceeded to make it a relatively lawless place, which then attracted the attention of the bears in the woods around it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's turning into a great you know in a, in a time where we're where we're questioning how many regulations we need and <laughs> you know what the structure of our society should look like it, it it's been, it's it's turning into a very amusing sort of cautionary tale. Yeah, I you've got my attention because I've been talking a lot about this lately about how libertarianism kind of doesn't work during a pandemic, but the libertarians don't know that. Uh, okay, uh, let's uh, talk to Carolyn Payne. What have you got to recommend to us? All right, two shows. One is um, Your Honor, which is on Showtime and mm -hmm. stars Brian Cranston. Um, it is spectacular. Brian Cranston is just always spectacular, and uh, the show is a really, really great ride. Um, so I recommend that. And then also um, this one, it, it, I, I don't know if they're still creating new episodes, but it's called Escape to the Chateau, and it started on PBS a couple years ago, and it's a British couple who buy a chateau in France and renovate it, basically having to like completely gut it and you know update it to be livable, and they turn it into this beautiful facility, um, and it's a really fun watch, and uh, the husband is an engineer, so he's capable to do all these amazing things, a lot of the work on his own. Uh, the wife, meanwhile, like, you know, sits there and paints eggs and plasters the wall with vintage wallpaper and stuff. But together, they're a great team. And it's a really fun show. And uh, especially like kind of in a year where you've been like stuck in your own home and sort of looking around being like, "Ooh, what sort of home home repairs can I do? This show is kind of fun for that. Well, we should say that Your Honor is not a series that, that's the first one she was talking about. It's not a series you want to watch when your nerves are frayed and frazzled. Uh, it's somewhat anxiety provoking. It's about a judge whose son in a hit and, has a hit and run and uh, it, really bad things unfold after that. I won't do any spoilers, but... Uh, yeah, I didn't know how to describe it without even literally giving anything away, but it's right. worth the watch, yeah. even with the anxiety. Yes. So um, I'll just do some quick recommendations just apropos of the show today. Um, one of them is, if you ha I've recommended it before, I think, but just if you just Google, let's see, Tom Cruise, Conan O'Brien car, uh, you'll get this 11-minute clip of uh, Conan O'Brien driving... Tom Cruise around in a car in London, um, and and it's really funny. It's it's funny in a very slow building way. But Tom Cruise is like really funny in it. I mean, he completely gets what he's supposed to do, because Conan O'Brien becomes kind of crazier and crazier and more unreliable, and it seems a little bit like the the Tom Cruise movie Collateral or something like like it was sort of. So anyway, that's funny. Uh, a beautiful song about porches is uh, Eva O'Donovan's Porch Light. Uh, I would recommend that you Google that. Eva is I think A O I F E maybe, um, but she's wonderful. Everything she sings is great. Two two newsletters I will quickly recommend. Uh, one 
One of them is Today in Tabs, Rusty Foster. He's just revived it. It's been away for a long time. I hate to recommend either one of these because then people will be less impressed by my uh, command of esoteric things on the web. Uh, the other one is Links I Would G-Chat You If We Were Friends. Links I Would G-Chat You If We Were Friends. It's Caitlin Dewey's uh, newsletter. They're very similar in a lot of ways, but they give you the stuff from the internet that's really interesting and sometimes funny that doesn't necessarily pop up in any of your conventional feeds. And one of the things that Rusty Foster directed me to was a recent episode of Reply All, which is a terrific uh, podcast about the internet uh, in which uh, they really kind of discuss deplatforming in a way that I found very helpful and enlightening. All right. So those are our recommendations today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that libertarian bear book. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer. Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. The rest of you, thank you very much for joining us, too. Uh, if you are listening on Saturday at noon, you'll hear Pardon Me, Season 2, Episode 1, which we definitely want you to hear. It's cozy, like a Cracker bell. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this. Talking about that, and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.